chapter 1. Chapter 1, 5, and 6. Start a little bit there in four. I like how this starts. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to see from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of all the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God has made us part of his royal priesthood. Yes. Most of us wear a variety of hats. You know, we all have uh, labels, if you will. You know, we can be a child, some of us are siblings, some of us are parents, some of us are homeowners, we're neighbors, employees, we can be a hobbyist, we can be a lobbyist, we can be club members, and the list just keeps going on. We all carry many labels and titles. If we are a believer in Christ, we can add to that list, and when we respond to God's grace and put our trust in Christ, we become a new creation. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has sprung, a new creation. And not, not all, because uh, through our faith, God calls us our, our uh, beloved. You know, I had a, a, what do you call it, printer error. It's another reason for digital technology. I could have a tablet up here and have no problem with printing. But every now and then it takes a word and it makes it all blurry. But anyways, he also calls us his beloved children, so we are also his children. So we are a new creation and we are his children. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. John chapter 1. The Bible further identifies us as God's servants. We see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 4.1. So look at Apollos and me. And we were servants of Christ who had been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Did you know that? You're in charge of explaining God's mysteries? That's kind of uh, a high charge. What? i got to explain the mysteries of God? Well, you can. You can. The Bible further identifies us as, as servants, as I said. And so he also identifies us as ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So we are ambassadors in this world. We are making a plea to the public, to the world, come back to God. Amen. We are also called soldiers. Isn't it interesting, too, being labeled a soldier is only found a couple of times there in the New Testament. That, you know, there's plenty of soldiers, but that soldier for that name, for that meaning in the Greek, is only found a couple of times. And I suspect it was when Paul was being in prison and he started befriending these soldiers who was in charge of him, he started taking that vernacular and saying, you know what, these guys are doing a duty, doing their job. That can be likened to us as ambassadors and children of God. So he told Timothy to endure suffering as long as me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's interesting how suffering is equated with being a soldier. Lately I've been looking into the concepts of underestimating and overestimating you know we you know i'm teaching that to my girls now you know make an estimate based on what you see how many you think are in this group how many you think are in this group but in life in anything in life we constantly get these wrong to underestimate and overestimate we tackle a project and we're going to do it 
and we completely underestimate the amount of time it takes to complete the project. Or we do something and we think we had to have all this stuff with us. My wife and I, first time we traveled with kids, we went to Wyoming <coughs> and we had like seven suitcases. <laughs> and we get there and we're like, we completely overestimated how much stuff we needed. We did not need all this stuff. Now when we travel with the kids, you know, we, we estimate correctly what we need. <laughs> so, as a follower of Christ, we are also constantly learning that it's not as easy as we thought, or as we had set out to say, that I'm going to be a soldier for Christ. And then quickly we realize, we really don't like all this suffering. And how can we keep losing battles? How can we, you know, we keep falling short? Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm just better at just going to church. I can do that. But what really happens is, I believe, is that you just underestimated what it took. Jesus took his disciples on a whirlwind ride. I mean, talk about a ride of their lifetimes in the three years they were with Jesus, and never once did he coddle them. It's all right, you know, it's okay, hang in there, buddy, you know, stuff like that. He just said, follow me. And they took them along everywhere they went. And uh, what do you call, uh, by just virtue of living, getting their hand dirty experience, they saw what it took to be a follower of Christ, to be a soldier of Christ. So, um, when a soldier enters boot camp, when a soldier enters boot camp, not one soldier who finishes boot camp, depending on whatever visit, some boot camps are way harder. Seth would attest to that. Some are, you know, you go to a regular infantry army, yes, all right, you know, you get into the Marines, that's even harder. You get into special forces, and that's just insane, and on and on. But not anyone who completes boot camp underestimates what it takes to be a soldier. They know. They're prepared. It's grueling on purpose. It's meant to be hard on purpose so that when you exit it and you're ready to do this job that's called you to do, you're prepared. You're ready for whatever hardship comes your way. So anyways, uh, where am I going with this? I'm talking about hats. People have different hats. So probably one is the most important of all hats that we wear as believers is the priests. We uh, wear hats of the priesthood, if you will. First Peter 2.9. Uh, hopefully it is a one. Yeah. First Peter 2.9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. So as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's an encouraging identity to ponder. The Apostle John, in the opening chapter of Revelation that we just read, described believers as priests. The idea here is that, like the priests of the Old Testament, we have been set apart by God to serve God and to help others encounter God. That is our express purpose as part of God's royal priesthood, to live our lives fully for him. We can't uh, expect to be perfect priests, and we don't have to perform all the rituals, thankfully, that the Old Testament priests had to do and had to perform. However, we can have an amazing relationship with a God who has an amazing relationship with among himself as a triune God with the Christ himself and the Holy Spirit, an egg, if you will, all encapsulated, all perfect, all one entity, yet there's three parts in there, you know? And that was broken for us so that we may have access to that. I mean, it's just awesome when you think about it. It's, uh, he is, Jesus is our high priest, and we are the priesthood. We offer light and forgiveness, and we should never underestimate, there is that word again, we should never underestimate that power that's in us. And we do, we do all the time. That power, what, is in me. Are you crazy? That's, that should, like, sweep you off your feet, you know, rattle your brain, shake your soul. If you notice, um, well, I run into folks all the time, believers, non-believers, doesn't matter. They just don't get a grasp the concept. They just can't grasp it. Like, I don't understand this. I just don't get this, you know. And I read this, and it's just like, what, you know, and that's it. You know, they just, that's all they can do. And there is estimated time to learn, to be an expert at anything. You know, if anything you want to pick, it takes at least 10,000 hours. That's what they put, that's what they've, done from all their research at these research studio institutes is it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert in anything. So 
reading a passage in the Bible and say, ah, I don't get that, I don't get it, and then just putting it down, that's not going to get it. That's putting very minimal effort <laughs> in trying to understand something. But have you also noticed, at least in me, if I give 50% effort into something, I gain like 10%. Ever notice that? It's like if you put in 100%, you gain about 50% of something. It's like our effort has to be like beyond full effort. It has to be, if you will, it has to be obsession. It has to be an obsession. It has to be something that you totally, when I pursued Aubrey, I was obsessed with pursuing Aubrey. That was an obsession. It really was. When you fall in love with that person, it's an obsession. You just want to do everything you can to pursue them, to make them like you, to do everything you can. You know? And likewise, with pursuing God, it has to be an obsession. You need to be so insane obsessed. Uh, there are people who ask people, why are you so successful? Why are you, you know, in business and, and life and marriage and family and stuff like that? Now, a lot of us are mistakenly successful. It's not like this is the only means to be successful. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I just don't want you to think that you have to like mimic this person per perfectly. But how this one guy lived his life was every hour of every day was planned. He had a plan for every hour. He had a plan for everything that he was going to do. This was going to be work. This was going to be family. This was going to be time. And then he would provide one day for spontaneous activity. You know, one day for doing stuff, but whatever. Doing family, you know. And then, then he would plan in trips. And he would put trips in there. And that trip would be, again, unplanned, spontaneous, just go to do stuff. Now, that may be a little OCD, you know, a little crazy. But I dare you to try it. I dare you to try it and see how much you get done in a week and how much further you're along in accomplishing things. Try it. I mean, really, what, what do you have to lose? If you're not getting anywhere, then stop doing the thing you're, you're doing to try to get there. The, the car isn't working, and it can't make the hill. So get another vehicle and try to get up that hill. Maybe the 4 by 4 is broken. So, so in a natural world, this is true. Our effort produces results, results. Our effort to go to school gives you the degree. You know, our effort to learn this task or this skill allows you to make money providing that skill for people. So, uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. In the spiritual realm, spiritual, I believe it has to do more with yielding. It's not all our effort in white knuckles and, you know, pounding our chest and, you know, putting ashes on our head and wearing sackcloths that will get God to answer us, you know, and, and it's just more of an act of yielding. It's a complete reverse of that natural effort as opposed to a spiritual effort to become closer to God, to follow what he wants you to do, to be a priest. I read this story in Sports Illustrated, uh, uh, one magazine I love to read all about sports, even though it tends to lean to the left, but there was this guy who wrote this story, and he's, a, he's basically just a sports writer, but he wrote like a uh, commentary on his own life. He read the story about these guys, they're like a group of 40-something guys, and they're, I forget the name of the club, but it's like the, the dunk club. You know, they're, they were determined in their mid, midlife crisis, if you will, that they were going to dunk a basketball, depending, you know, these are white as can be, can't jump <laughs> dudes, you know. And the guy who wrote the story is my height, he's my stature, literally. He's like six feet, maybe a little light, not as heavy as me. And he's going to go dunk a 10-foot basketball rim, dunk a ball. So he wrote down his goals, and he said he was going to do this, and he was going to do that. He was going to exercise and learn to do the, the lunges with his legs to get better power from his jump. And he was going to uh, devote this much X amount of hours in a day. Uh, he said he was only able to accomplish because he had such a loving wife because all his extra time was to go dunk this basketball. And he said he was going to do it in six months. Well, it took a year. <laughs> it took a whole year. It took blood bleeding in his hand because he kept missing the rim, uh, blown out knee, fr uh, sprained ankle. I mean, you name it. The guy's story is just amazing. Just to dunk a basketball. That's all he, he just wanted to prove himself he can dunk a basketball. So the story had so much... Uh, principles, like things that you could draw from it. And one was his underestimating how long it would take to dunk a basketball. Two was his effort to 
to get it done, to accomplish it, despite all the odds, being a six-foot white guy and kind of dunk a basketball, uh, having an understanding of a family that was like, yeah, we'll, we'll let you, we'll lose you for a year so you can dunk this basketball, plus all the scrutiny, I mean, untold scrutiny from his peers, his other sports writers, family and friends are like, you're nuts, you're crazy, why are you doing this, why are you trying to prove this, you know? So that story is just, in the natural, is so inspiring, you know, just for that something so silly at dunking a basketball, what more could we do in the spiritual realm if we gave that much effort? You know, if we just gave that much effort to yield, not effort to work, but effort to yield, that much effort to just yield to the Lord. So how do we become the most effective priests in today's world? Well, here are 10 steps. No, no. How do we become the most effective priests in today's world? If you guys could dim these lights just a, you know, 10%. They're just, they're glaring. Yeah, that's better. Um, up just a little bit. All right. Woo! Every time I look down, all I see is spots. All right. The simple answer is, obviously, to become the best you can be. I threw an army slogan in there. Be the best you can be. We all have certain limitations, of course. I don't think I'll ever dunk a basketball. The dude could, so why not? But I'm never going to run a mile in under four minutes. You know, there's certain things that you just have limitations. You're not going to do. But I can be a better priest. I definitely can. I can be a better minister to the people. I can, um, I can definitely... Uh, I don't need any special skill to be a priest. I don't. If you really think about it, and, I was, and I'm going to show you that, that why today. I recall once being a young Bible student. Uh, it's funny how I say young. It really is 20 years ago almost. It's just in insane how long ago. But anyways, I, I was in Bible school, and it's a three-year school, and it's a crucible of intense learning and intense uh, fire and it's just intense everything you know worship is always six songs of dancing and then maybe one song of praise uh worship you know it was always i'm going to be an ambassador for the lord i'm going to be a history maker in the land i'm going to win souls by the millions and they're just going to come off flocking you know and uh and that's it, it's not like the school does it on purpose it's just a byproduct of being in, in that pressure cooker of all these like-minded individuals, all on fire for God, all young, naive, and just going for it, you know. And out of my class of 200, maybe, you know, 10% of that went on to be missionaries and pastors and, and to do all these things. And I could just tell you stories of how all people turned out out of that 200. It's just amazing. And we were all in the same school, and we all just took different, took different avenues. But the point I'm trying to make is, I was going to be a soldier. Just give me the orders, and I was going to go out there and take the, take the beachhead. And the world was all of a sudden was much bigger than you realize. And all of a sudden, there was a pushback. You're like, you know, people are not listening to what you're saying. And you, uh, if I bet in the truth, you realize it wasn't so crystal clear to the world as it was to you. You know, everybody had this gray area of living, and they would throw you these questions, and you just whoa, I wasn't sure how to answer that. You know, you're not, sh you're not quite ready. So, uh, here we go. You switch, you make a switch. Somewhere in life, after school, you decide, you know what? I'm going to be in covert operations. <laughs> Black ops. You know, instead of being just dressed as a soldier, carrying my Bible and a cross of gold, I'm just going to look like everybody else. I'm just going to be hip wear the same clothes as everybody else, listen to the same music. Yeah, yeah, man, I love Rolling Stones. They rock, you know. Uh, you just, you just want to be like the rest of them. But then when the moment is right, you strike. You know, you, you bring the moment of light, and everybody's like, whoa, you know. I, I had no idea you were a Christian, you know. You were just drinking beer with us last week. And then you quickly revert back in, you know. Oh, well, you know, I don't want to push anybody. I don't want to make everybody believe what I believe, you know, so you quickly go back to covert, you know, wear your hair in a certain way so you look like everybody else. And, and then eventually you're like, you know, nothing's happening and I'm starting to slip my own life. I'm starting to fall back and backslide. So you decide, I need more schooling. That's what I need to do. I'm just going to get out of the field, 
no more black ops, and I'm just going to park myself in more schooling, more teaching, the self-help section. Oh, man, I can read every single book here, and I'll become a better person. I'll be a better Christian. And I'll be in church, and I'll listen to the pastors, and I'll get on the radio, and I'll listen to all the speaking, and you just you daily fill your life till you're so fat with knowledge that you just don't know what to say. So then you're so full, and then you go out there in the world. Now I'm confident, I'm more strong, I know what I'm talking about, and you just throw up on everybody. Just, <laughs> you know, all this knowledge, all this greatness. And, you know, that's the life cycle of a Christian that is like me. I know, everybody's different. I know you all weren't. Many of you were saved uh, in your later years, and you wouldn't grow up in a church like me. But for me, that's what it was. That's what it's like. So, I say all that is that pursuit, that pursuit, the pursuit to honor God and to uh, make Him real in your life and make Him real in other people's lives can be really hectic. It can be really insane. It can be really full of too much. So, I hope today that I can just simplify that role that we have in the world for all of you and for me <laughs> as well. So, oh yeah, I threw in here, you know, we have our briefings on Sundays. You know, you come in for your battle briefings and we get out of orders. You know, that's what Sunday is. So, it's funny. But the first mention of priesthood is found in Exodus 19.6. And at that time, God gave the law to the nation of Israel and he dressed them as follows. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice, and indeed keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Since this honor was dependent on an if, if you obey me and keep my commandments, uh, it never materialized, as we know. Israel never did obey him completely, and it never did keep his commandments and his laws. And so they never became a national priesthood. So instead, God chose one family, as we know, the family of Aaron, and he and his sons were ordained to officiate a special priesthood, as we read in Exodus 28. And he said, And take thee unto Aaron, the, the brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, so the office of the priesthood. The New Testament tells us in Hebrews 7, that this was known as the Levitical priesthood because Aaron and his sons were of the tribe of Levi. Giving you guys some history here. It is often called the Aaronic, the Aaronic priesthood because Aaron was his first high priest. So this priesthood functioned during the Old Testament and it was still in force, still being practiced when Jesus came on the scene. But on the death of Christ, that completely changed. As we read in Hebrews 7.12, another priest arose, and we read that after a new order, the order of Melchizedek, five times in this epistle of Hebrews we read that Christ as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Pastor Nick has spoke on that. I'm not going to go, if you guys remember his teaching on that. But anyway, the old priesthood was abolished, and a new one took its place. Aaron was the original head of the old Levitical priesthood. Christ is now the head of the new spiritual priesthood. This was dramatically illustrated, oh, when the Lord stood before Caiaphas. Now, you guys know this story. They charge Jesus. Caiaphas is there, the high priest. And uh, I forget the name of the other guy, but there's these two high priest guys, and they're all there. And they're, they challenge Jesus for, you know, offenses against the church. You know, he's a heretic, and we need to kill him, and blah, blah, blah. Caiaphas was so angry so beside himself that this, this man, Jesus, was so defiant and so, you know, mm, you know he just, I could just see his face. He just wanted to kill this guy. And the guy was blameless, and he knew that, but he just wanted to kill him, that he rent his clothes. He just tore him apart. You know, ah, just went crazy. <laughs> well, kind of like the hawk, you know, rawr, just going nuts over Jesus. Can you imagine the scene, the, the people watching this? It's like, this guy mad? Well, did you guys know that in Exodus, or Leviticus 21.10, that a priest was forbidden to rent his clothes, was forbidden to rip the linen and the clothes that he was supposed to wear? That was against the law. And by doing that act, he uh, disqualifies himself from the priesthood. 
So right here in front of Jesus, a symbol of disqualification of the, new, of the Old Testament priesthood, and Jesus was standing right there to take his place. I am now the high priest. You have just disqualified yourself. I am from the high order of Melchizedek. I am now the new priest. Right there before everybody. No, probably nobody ever realized it. Uh, I didn't realize it. I had to read about it. Someone did a study on it. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. So here was Jesus to supersede him. So what's the difference between Aaronic, Arianic, Aaronic, Aaronic, here we go, and Christ's priesthood? Well, let's see. The earthly Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of believers. Aaron and his sons were priests of the old. Christ and his son, who are as sons and daughters, believers of the priesthood today, and the Lord Jesus is called the high priest. Twelve times in the epistle of Hebrews, and priest was used six times more. As we read from Hebrews 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. Number two, Aaron was a human being full of failures, as we know. He was there when they wanted to build that golden calf. You know, it's crazy. So, uh, he was an earthly one and operated in connection with an earthly sanctuary. But Christ's priesthood is a heavenly one. As we read in Hebrews 8, we have such an high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Aaron and, uh, for Aaron and his sons offered physical animal sacrifices, which could never fully take away the sins of man. But Christ, on the other hand, offered himself through the eternal spirit without spot to God, and the blood of animals could never atone for sin, but the precious blood of Christ purges the consciousness of men and removes the death of sin, the, the death that sin brings, and uh, so that we may serve the living God fully and completely, without hindrance, if you will. Number five, Aaron and his sons did what all men do eventually. They died. They, all, you know, they were priests of the old, but they didn't have a, you know, unlimited reign. They, they died. It would be passed on to the next generation. But Jesus continues forever. He is an unchangeable priesthood, and he is so he was able to give save to the othermost to the very end them that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. I'm reading Hebrews 7. Six, Aaron had to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but also for his own sins. But Christ died for our sins. He did not offer for his own sins because he was blameless, holy, without spot. So that made him the perfect sacrifice. Number seven, Aaron's work never put away sin, one sin. But Christ's blood is able to cleanse every soul from sin, just like that. So what does the expression priest after the order of Melchizedek mean? I'm going to touch on it lightly. The seventh chapter of Hebrews, if you're going to, we're delving into a lot, uh, fully delves into that. Read that seventh chapter of Hebrews. Um, but let's briefly consider that there was a priest named Melchizedek who lived in Abraham's day more than 400 years before the law was given. He was not only a priest, but he was also a king. And where else do we see that happen again? Jesus is the high priest, and he is the king. The king was never allowed to be the priest because that would corrupt that uh, commandment. And, you know, uh, Saul wanted to be a priest. You know, David acted as a priest a little bit, but he was, <laughs> he was so after God's own heart that he got away with it, if you will. But God never allowed that. A king had to have separation from the priesthood and the temple. So he's not only the priest, but he was also the king, the king of Salem. And Salem means peace, which where we get Jerusalem and Shalom. While Melchizedek means king of righteousness, naturally this man, he got his name from birth, but he had to grow up to become king of Salem, and he was therefore king of righteousness before he was king of peace. There is an important thing to realize there is there can be no peace in your life or in this world unless there is righteousness. Righteousness comes first. You can... Pray peace and act peaceful all you want, but if you're not in right standing with the Lord, it's not peace, you know? King of righteousness comes, sets you free, makes you right, then you can have the king of peace. It always works in that order. Peace does not bring about righteousness, if you will, which is why the world will never see peace, you know, fully until Christ returns. 
So he was therefore a king of righteousness before he was king of peace. In this, he was a beautiful type of Christ who is truly the righteous one by the fact of who he is. While he became the king of peace through his redemptive work upon the cross, for he is our peace and he has made peace through the blood of the cross. The fact that Melchizedek lived long before the Levitical priesthood came into being suggests that this higher priesthood of Melchizedek was in God's mind long before the Jewish priesthood commenced. Since Melchizedek typifies Christ and his work, it proves that Jesus' heavenly priesthood and God's purposes preceded the Jewish priesthood. So, what that tells us is, God didn't say, um, we don't really have a good priest thing going here, so let's come up with the Jewish priesthood. Let's just, you know. <laughs> no, God already had a pattern. He already had a perfect pattern. He already knew who the high priest had to be. So that was a shadow, if you will, of the high priest, the Melchizedek, you know. It wasn't like it was an idea that sprung up during the Jewish lineage when he, God came up with the priesthood and the temple and all the rituals and all that stuff. It was already there. It already exists. It was already in place. Moving on. The first thing Christ did as a high priest after the new order was to offer himself to God for our sins, something Aaron never could or you know, would or could do. All the sacrifices which Aaron and his sons offered through the centuries pointed on to the one and all availing sacrifice of Christ. Christ's priesthood thus sets aside the old order. The only priesthood of the Bible that now knows about is that of Christ as the high priest. So going back to 1 Peter 2, if you uh, were already there, chapter 5, it's, the pri it's, it's talking about the priesthood of believers. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. When an offering was, was when an animal was sacrificed, that aroma is what went to God to please him. It wasn't so much the killing of the animal. I mean, the animal had to be perfect, but it was the aroma itself that ple was pleasing to God. If that animal was sick or had any other problems, it wouldn't have been a pleasing aroma. Or if it was done in the wrong attitude, it wouldn't have been a pleasing aroma. So, just like us, being priests in the priesthood of under the high priest, our lives can be a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord in the same manner. So, verse 6, as the scriptures say, Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, and then the, the, the phrase from uh, Isaiah, I believe, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fail, and they stumble because they do not obey God's word, and they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession, and as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Isn't that awesome? Amen. Amazing, it's awesome. So now you have received God's mercy. So dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So Aaron was the first high priest and his sons were priests under him. Now Christ is the one and only heavenly high priest and his sons and daughters, us, is underneath him. Believers in Jesus form the present spiritual priesthood as the above uh, scripture we just read. We are both a holy and royal priesthood. So there has arisen, it has arose, what has arose from all that without any warrant whatsoever in God's word, a pretentious system known as, uh, there's a system that, isn't it funny that even though something gets changed and something gets set apart, that people will completely ignore what the scripture said and come up with something on their own. So I'm stopping here because I'm not trying to like come against the Catholic Church and come against them, but they did restore the whole priesthood concept. So we got the Pope, 
and we got all these priests, and there are only so many of them, and then all these flocks of people underneath them. So we have a man, much like Aaron, again, and all these priests, so they're all natural men, full of failure, full of making mistakes, and they come in and they, they say, now we are now the new priesthood. You know, we have to perform all these rituals, sacraments, and all that stuff to make people right with God again. And it's like, you know, you, I, I read the same Bible. You know, it's, it's just funny that even Peter, who they assume is the first pope, so to speak, said that passage in there, God, Jesus is the high priest, not me. We're just the priesthood underneath them. So I'm bringing this up because very much like the Roman church and the Rome Empire at that time came up with the whole pope and the priesthood, it was, as a, it was a tactic to rob us of the chance of being a priest. It was a tactic to say, you don't have that qualification. You can't. You've, you've done this. You're, you're married or whatever. All the little things that make a priest a priest. They robbed people. So for generations of people looked to these priests to be the people that would offer them uh, forgiveness and righteousness, failed to see that they were, them, they were that themselves. They were robbed. So in a way, today, the state, the state and governments uh, that are especially threatened by our autonomy, if you will, want to rob that from you as well. They want to take your right to be the priest of this world. They want to take that away from you. You don't have the right to tell them what love is or to tell them what truth is. You guys see that? Is that making sense? The generations of people that have fallen trapped to you don't have, they underestimate the power of Christ within. That's that word. They underestimate that. They underestimate that. So they leave that vacuum. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. They leave the vacuum in their life and let someone else fill that. You know, we're guilty of that too. You know, we'll let Pastor Nick do the teaching stuff. You know, I'm not a teacher and preacher. We'll let Pastor Nick handle that. We do it all the time. You know, we, 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 we usurp our power and let that die down and let someone else take the slack. Let someone else be the guy be the voice, you know, be the vision. So, that's awesome. I said everything here that I wanted to say. So, the true priesthood has Christ as his great high priest and head, as we have already then, and his, as we have already seen, and his headquarters are in heaven. So, this whole, you know, the high priest is in Rome, and that's where he governs, is it's just... It, again, not attacking the Catholic Church. It's just saying there is right here in our own time, in our own life, we can see people still trying to re- get back to that old priesthood way of thinking, the old priesthood way of li- living. And it's no surprise that we see so many Catholics lost. I mean, large amounts of them just living life, and then maybe they'll come in on Easter and you know get their lives right again, and then they're lost again. They're completely uh, ignorant of the, the power that's within them. <coughs> it's, uh, it's saddening. So, and also I say all that because that is a avenue and a, uh, what do you call it? Mm, I'm lost for words today. That is a chance, there we go, opportunity for us as true priests under the high priest to minister to those. It's not just the lost world. It's the people who are got a little messed up about what the Bible says. Got a little messed up about that process of the priesthood. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm getting to the good part. So, here we go. Yes, all believers are priests, including uh, men, women, young, old. It's not a qualification that you have to go earn or go get. Priests in the Old Testament were such because they were from Aaron's family, but now we are priests because we were born into God's family. When you were born again, and except for Jesus, you were born into his family, you automatically become a priest. You automatically have that office. Since a believer is, is a priest by new birth, it means that no gift is needed, as I've been saying, to act as a priest. Prophets in the Old Testament were chosen by God because of special gifts. 
Today, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers, they're chosen because they have a particular gift. They have a gift for doing that. So either the gift finds them or they notice they have a gift and they go pursue that gift. However it comes about, it's a gift. It's a talent that comes to them. But being a priest, this is not in relation to priesthood. A babe in Christ, someone who has absolutely no knowledge of scripture or priesthood or anything I'm talking about today, can behave as a priest right after they become saved. And they always do, don't they? They go and they tell all their friends and then that friend, and then they meet a little hostility, but they're just so on fire and for the love that just changed their life. They're already behaving as a priest and no one told them how to be one. See how that is? There is no, quali- there's no qualification you need to do to be a priest. So what did the, per- the word priest means? Well, very simply, it's the root meaning either a prince or a servant. And that's exactly what every Christian priest is. For in 1 Peter 2.9 says that a believer is a royal priest and thus a prince. And he's also a holy priest to serve God with a holy life. A prince indicates a high position and a servant is a lowly position. So divine grace has made us princes. And in that same grace, it delights to use us in his service and in his service down here on earth, if you will, before we be with him, we have, a, we have an opportunity to serve as priests. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So it's a servant attitude that's first and foremost. It's not, uh, I'm a priest and you must bow, you know, you must serve me and treat me with that office. No, you serve. Who served more? I mean, the high priest showed us how to serve, and he was the high priest. He was the man, and he was serving. He was serving people, washing a disciple's feet. That, that's what we need to do, too. So in the Old Testament, the high priest alone was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year, but now we now have access to the Holy of Holies. So again, that qualifies us as a priest. We have boldness in Hebrews 10. We have boldness to enter into the holiest and the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living, living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, we may draw near with him with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies are washed with pure water. Now as we, we as priests have perfect liberty to come into the very presence of God by him, as it says, in Hebrews 13, that we may come to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So that comes to my next part is, how does one become a, uh, become a priest? And this is beautifully illustrated in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, obviously, is the shadow of things to be. You know, we, we read the Old Testament, it shows us the, the symbolism and stuff. And then we see it, how it came to be perfected in Christ. So a priest had to do three things. One, he had to be cleansed. Moses was told to wash Aaron and his son with water. This ceremonial washing took place but once, but afterwards they only washed their hands and feet. So <laughs> you couldn't go be making sacrifices smelling like you know, a cow pasture. You had to go in there smelling clean. But they only washed their bodies once. After that, it was just their hands and their feet. So, yeah, they only watch their hands and feet. So we see this type in John 13 when he's told Simon Peter in verse 10, he that is bathed need not to save to wash his feet. So Jesus told Peter that a believer is bathed only once, implying the original salvation. So in Titus 3.15, he calls regeneration a bath, if you will. It's just a Greek word, bath. Thus, the bathing of Aaron and his sons illustrates new birth, and it is, it is, and it is that which entitles us to be a priest today. And baptism, you know, baptism in water, we are now a new creation, that full bath. But we don't need to go keep getting baptized, right? Is anybody still doing the whole thing? I mean, we take baths, we go swimming, but we're not doing that whole process ritual of being baptized in water. So, number one, they had to be cleansed. Likewise, today, we are cleansed, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Two, they had to be clothed. Thankfully, they needed to wear clothes. But it was the the specifics of what they had to wear. So let's read this. The priests were to be clothed, 
and the garments were to be made of linen, only linen. And it explains why this had to be. They were not to sweat in God's presence, <laughs> believe it or not. So now you got to be clean, but you can't go in there getting smelly again. You know, isn't that something? Something about the aroma. It's something about our sacrifice of who we are that's pleasing aroma to God. It's just amazing. That's why we were given a nose. We were told not to sweat in God's presence. There was to be no smell of human flesh when they approached God, but only the sweet Savior, uh, the smell which speaks of the perfections of Christ. Linen keeps one cool, while wool makes one sweat. Wool is a natural product that grows on sheep's backs, while linen is a manufactured article. You have to make linen. So saints in scripture are seen to wear linen, and the covering had to be manufactured, so we have no natural or no righteousness of our own. There's no actual act of our own. There's no way of saying, I made this. You know what I mean? It was the linen that had to be manufactured from God, if you will. And the covering had to, here we go, we have no natural, no righteousness of our own, but we are clothed in a righteousness Christ made for us at the cross. Thus being clothed in linen, we see that the believer's priest of today is dressed in righteousness provided for him by Christ's death on the cross. The believer is seen as fully accepted in the beloved. The world all around us boasts its gorgeous garments made of earthly material, but the New Testament knows nothing about that. The believer is dressed in the spiritual garments of the divine righteousness, which make him fit for the presence of God. So Pastor Nick loves that phrase. We take the, we, we always replacing for something. The oil of joy for mourning. You know, the, the, we have the heaviness. Uh, he, exactly. He uses those phrases all the time. But it's so true. We replaced what we had for the, the garment of righteousness. And that makes us acceptable before the Lord. So we are cleansed and we are clothed, and that makes us acceptable. And uh, the third one is consecrated. So the, the blood was put on the ear, the thumb, and the big toe of the priest. It was the blood of the ram of consecration, and the blood consecrated him in the service of God, just as the precious blood of Christ consecrates us before him that makes us the priest. So those three things, to be cleansed, clothed, and consecrated, happens spiritually for us right now. That is the New Testament, the new order of things, and that qualifies to us to be a priest. As you can see, I'm building the case of why we are qualified to be a priest. Did anybody have to do any work yet? Did anybody have to do anything extra? Did you have to go to school and get a degree? No, no one has had to do anything yet. Simply to accept that Jesus, what Jesus had done for your life. Now, here is the function of the priest. This is our function today in this uh, very lost world. First and foremost, as I said this morning in the opening, was the function of a priest is to worship. It's to, I mean, if you were to put any em higher emphasis, don't underestimate this. <laughs> if anything, this is so important and so key, is worship. Worship always comes first in scripture. Eleven tribes of Israel were warriors, one tribe was composed of workers, and one family of worshipers, the priests. So it is still true that so few believers really enter into their privilege of being priests. And we see here in uh, John 4, the Father seeks worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, what did the elders do uh, in Revelation? If you read the whole book of Revelation, the 12, what do they do every time they're in the presence of God when he starts to speak? Or the oracle or uh, the writer, whatever. Anybody that spoke, what did the 12 do? They fell down. It's so funny. You read it all, and they always fell. They just fell prostrate before, had nothing to say, had uh, nothing to offer except just worship. They just fell down. And being prostrate, prostrate um, is a term where your hands are out. So you're not just bowing and, you know, hiding something. You're prostrate. Your hands are out. You're fully down when you say, I am yours. I am yours. You know, and then they, I should have memorized it. I read it the other day. The, the, what was the phrase they always said? They always uttered it over and over again. The earth is the Lord or whatever. They had this chant every time they say it. And it was just really to sum up how they felt. Was That was all they could do in God's presence. Worship is intercession and is service. 
it, the blood being put on the car, the hand and the foot, I'm sorry, on the ear, yeah, the thumb, the ear, and the foot suggests that now as a priest, I am to hear God's word, to do his will, and to walk in his way. I am not my own, but I have been bought with a price. So these worshipers, you need to worship in spirit and truth. In fact, if, as worshipers, we offer spiritual sacrifices, the adoration of our hearts. Worship is the only thing we can give to God directly. So that's why it's so important. God can get anyone to serve him if he wants to. Why not? He can get anybody to serve him. But it's that uh, that would usurp our willingness to want to serve him. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, he, has, he wants servants who serve him uh, uncoerced, with no coerce. You know, you, you do not come to me because I coerced you to do it. You came to me willingly and openly. So only true believers can, those who know and love our Lord Jesus Christ, are the one who redeemed them by his blood. Priests get the best of everything, if you notice, if you read the tedious stuff there in Exodus and Leviticus, is they always got the shoulder and the breast of the meat offering. I remember when I first read, I thought the offering was like, burn the thing, kill it, and that was it, you know. But they actually got to eat it, you know, afterward. And they always got the breast and the bone, uh, shoulder. So those two pieces, of course, illustrate that the love of Christ typified in the breast and the power of God seen in the shoulder are the food and strength of the worshiping believer, of the worshiping priest. He gives you the best. You get the best of what he has. Priests are not only worshipers, but intercessors. As Christ, our great high priest, intercedes for us in heaven, so we on earth intercede for others. As we read in 1 Timothy, praying for others is truly priestly service. Priests in the olden days carried the ark. They held it on their shoulders, so we as spiritual priests hold up Christ, of which the ark was a type. The priests upheld the ark as the army marched around Jericho, telling that we as priests uphold Christ as we walk here in spiritual victory over the enemy around us. We proclaim the same thing. We walk carrying the ark. We carry Christ, and we, pro we proclaim it to the world. The priests who blew the trumpet before the ark as they went around Jericho, calling attention to the ark, you know, it wasn't just to scare them with a trumpet. It was to make them take notice. We have the ark. And that we, in the same way, blow this gospel trumpet. We blow the trumpet of the gospel of good news, the gospel of love to those around us. And we call men, we call attention to ourselves. We can't be in covert black ops. We need to call attention to ourselves. We need to come out with gentleness and respect. Believe me, don't be those arrogant Christians out there that just totally give us a bad name. But don't be covert either, you know. Express that love. Show that love to people. Priests in the Old Testament um, carried the sin of the people on their hearts as well. We read that in Leviticus and Numbers. Those who realize their privileges and feel their responsibility as priests today hear the sorrows and the sins that often afflicts God's people. And we carry the burdens of God's people and pray for them. Priests offer to God in that definite way, too, and I have a couple more points here, but we should be burdened, not burdened in the sense of, like, oh, we're carrying, you know, we're carrying our burdens, but we should have a burden in our hearts and our shoulders for the world and for the lost. So easy, and we see it recently, so easy, so many uh, self-righteous people who think they're the priests and they can go around telling people, you know, you're lost and you're messed up and, and they just use the wrong vernacular and there's no respect and there's no gentleness. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have that burden, but that burden of love will be demonstrated by our actions. Otherwise, it's just clashing symbols and it's just, it's just seen as hate. People don't like that, you know? We all know that. It's just it's, uh, the, the amount of leeway we have in this day and age especially mostly in, this, in, the, in the West, is this small now, you know, that amount of understanding, that amount of, you know, you got to make sure you hit that mark right first or you're on other ends and you're done. They don't even want to listen to you. Now, you could say, well, you know, screw it. 
if that's the way they want to be, and they just want to be that way, then I'm not going to even waste my time. That's not living a burdened life for the lost. That's not living a burdened worshiping, uh, being a minister of peace. That's not that you want to. You want to find a way to find that hole and get to their heart and get to them and speak to them and, and share the love of Christ with them. So we offer this way in a definite way as by our praise and adoration in 1 Peter 2, 5 again. And let us not forget that this is not only done in one private individual life, but it's in a very special way as we're doing today. As a, as a body of believers coming together to fellowship together, to praise God, and to receive from one another, receive a word that, that someone gives, and then take that out into the world. So that's important as well. Believers also bring their gifts. We bring money, or we bring time, we bring bake sale, we bring goodies. And that sacrifice too, God is well pleased with that. That's showing that you're uh, not fully relying on the things of this world, but you're giving that to God. You're showing them, I, I truly trust you. I truly believe in you. Believers present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Our time, our talents, our labor, our gifts, whatever, belong to him, and that is true worship to yield them gladly to his surface. To yield them gladly. God loves a cheerful giver, right? To yield them gladly to the Lord is showing priestly service. So finally, let's take a brief look at what kind of people that priests should be. This also typifies in the command given to priests in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to go through all those, but it's really cool, it's not cool, funny, that anybody with a crooked nose, a bent back, any kind of deformity could not be a priest. Isn't that funny? They, they, had a, they couldn't hear or whatever. It's just a whole list of, you know, a crooked nose. You know, the guy couldn't be a priest because he had a crooked nose. But what does that mean today? What does that mean today? Well, obviously, any physical ailment we have does not disqualify us to be a priest. But looking at as a typified example of if you want to be a priest and an effective one in the, in the priesthood of God is you can't have a crooked nose and be bent toward the world. You can't have a crooked back because maybe that typifies you're trying to be something to people, but you're actually swindling and doing some back stuff, you know, of crooked ways in the back and that people can't see. Does that make sense? It was all these physical things that are also spiritual as well. Uh, people always recognize a fake. They al almost always do, especially the ones that have been around the block and they keep seeing more of these fake people come after them. That, th to be an effective priest, you can't be that way. You can't have ulterior motives. You can't have uh, a messed up ideology of who you are. Or If you want to be effective, you just need to be like all the functions I put in here. You need to be a willing worshiper. You need to be a, a minister of peace. You need to uh, wholly, unabashedly love people. But not naturally. Believe me, it's, it's ugly. You need to love people with the love of God, you know, the love of God that he has given to you. So how do we become the best? I'm going to ask the question again. How do we become the best priest possible in today's world? Well, we start by being worshipers in spirit and truth. We carry the burden of lost souls and pray for them. We offer them prayers to God and release that burden on him so we don't just carry that burden of the lost, but we have to actually give that to God as well. And then he'll actually show you where you need to specifically pray for or to pray for who you know. The Holy Spirit is amazing at that. It gives you things to pray for. We separate ourselves from the world without pointing a crooked finger in judgment. We move with gentleness and respect. We remember Jesus died for them as well. He wishes that the whole world would come to know him. He died for them too. He died for them too when they were just as messed up as you were. We serve those around us. We go the extra mile. We suffer injustice with love and compassion. We go to prison singing the praises to our king. Paul, Peter, and all of them, they were in prison and beaten and stoned, and we're still praising God. That's not fake living, and that's not fake priests. You know, there's no way. If you had a crooked back and a crooked finger and all those other ailments, and you get sent to prison, you're not singing. You won't be singing. You just, because you have the wrong view of why you're here and what your purpose is. So you're going to go to prison praising the king. We don't condemn others, but offer truth, again, in gentleness and respect. 
We live ever mindful of the eternity in our hearts. That's what those guys, the disciples had. They weren't afraid of death. They weren't afraid of uh, all the attacks. They had eternity in their hearts. Imagine the reaction when around Jesus, the people around Jesus, how they felt when he neither condemned them or ridiculed them when he had every reason to do so. The woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery. I mean, blew people away, blew them away. That they, he, he, he had every right as a high priest, and he didn't. Did he ever waver on the truth, though? Did he ever water it down, redefine it, try to change what it meant? No, he was the truth. He was the embodiment of truth encapsulated into a person and he was able to live that way without denying who, what truth was and still minister to those that deserved every bit of condemnation. It is not necessary to have an answer for everything that is thrown at you. Just say, I don't know the answer. And I'm talking about all these questions. Well, what about this and what about that? Uh, I get caught up in this. I always, you know, I do a lot of studying because I want to be able to answer. I want to I be like Jesus. When Jesus said, you're not asking that question because you want that answer. You're asking that question because of this. I, wanna, I love that. I love to be able to get, you know, and I can do it sometimes on certain questions. And you just see their faces. You just got through the little window that they allowed you to get through. And then right away, the, the whole armor just falls. And they're like blown away. You know, and it's, I want to be like that every time, but I cannot let that hold me back from ministering to people. I can't be like, you know, if I don't got it right, I ain't leaving the house. You know, I ain't doing it, you know. But don't make the mistake. I like Aubrey's story, her first manager at the bank, and she asked the manager, what do I need to do to be successful here? You know, and, and I'm not quoting her exactly, but what do I need to do to be able to be successful at the bank? And the manager said, Never ask the same question twice. If you ask the question, learn the answer, and that be it. Don't be coming back to me and keep asking, or don't have a customer keep asking you a question that you don't know the answer to. So that's what Aubrey did, you know? And she's the most trusted, she should be a manager, but she's the most trusted assistant manager of all the people that she's ever worked for as managers would die without her because she knows everything. And then when they need to get somebody out of the branch because they won't leave, they call Aubrey. Even the manager. They're like, Aubrey, you need to come in here and fix this. And she fixes it every time. That, as a believer, as a, as a Christian, should be the same way. Someone asked you a question, why did God do this, and you don't know the answer? You better know the answer the next time someone asks that question. That should just be your duty. You should know the answers if the next time they answer, ask that question. Uh, I, 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 uh, that, that sounds kind of harsh, but I, I believe that's what we should be doing. If we want to be priests, effective priests, we need to do that. We need to absolutely do that. So, as I was saying, we can get sidetracked trying to become experts at everything, but imperfect action works just as well as perfect action. Imperfect action, going for it and going for it, even though you underestimated it, you realize, okay, i got to up my stakes even more to accomplish what I need to accomplish. But doing something, as the old phrase goes, is a lot better than doing nothing. Amen? 50% of something is a lot better than 100% of nothing, as the business axiom saying they have. So it works. The reason why this works, the imperfect action, is because you're showing genuineness and you're showing that your heart and your conviction of your voice is true. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer. I don't know why God allows evil in the world that he does. You know, I don't know that, but you know what? I'm going to find out because I should know that. I should know why God does that. Um, I want to answer why right now (laughs) because I know why. But you know what I mean? You know why because now you're confident in that. But show that genuine voice. The world loves to say love wins. It's real big right now. Love wins. Love doesn't win. Truth wins. Every time the truth wins. You can redefine it, change it, do whatever you want. But Jesus didn't come because he felt all ooey and lovey. He came because he was the truth. And that was just going to be it. I am going to do what I've been called to do. That's the truth. Now, does love motivate that? Yeah, but love isn't this whatever it is that people try to make it what it is. Truth wins. 
every time. Let the truth guide you as a priest. Let the truth of God, the word, everything you understand guide you as a priest. Jesus said that we would be hated. He said that we would be a stumbling block to others. So he knew already, so don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He already knew. He foretold it. He gave you, uh, he gave you the advance, you know, Jesus, you didn't tell us it was going to be like this. You know, you could, he left everything on the table and told you how it was going to be. And so just get over it. It'll be fine. Every Christian is a priest and is a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. Don't rob yourself of its joys and blessings. And certainly, don't let Rome, the state, your government, your city, or your peer, the people around you, rob you of that as well. Don't let them tell you that you're not a priest, that you don't have that qualification. So, I'm pretty much finished here. I'm not going to say that you are going to save the world. I'm not going to say that you are going to go save the United States, or let alone the state of Florida. I, I, I'm not going to do what the Christian Bible schools do. You are going to do it. It's awesome. Just go for it. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. But what I will say is, let the king of kings and the high priest worry about the logistics of the battle. There is a war being waged out there, and he's the general. He's the one that knows where to put the pieces, where to put, you know, and we are so myopic to the West, because the West is all we see. But if you read about China and different parts of the world, it is a revival going on. God is not dead. God is not dying. He isn't going to die. Uh, truth always wins. And it's happening all around the world, everywhere. And so let the God worry about the logistics of the battle. But I am confident that if you spend more time praying and worshiping on a daily, everyday basis and, and do the crazy wild thing of like, the guy I was talking about, how he regimented his life every hour to everything. Just try it. Try it for two hours a day. That's going to be, that's it. Everything's off. No one can interrupt me. I can't answer the phone. I can't do anything. And I guarantee you, something will change. I just guarantee you, it has to. Uh, there's, there's, you know, make that bet on God. Make the bet. Put the, all your poker chips, you know. Yeah, I was in Vegas last weekend. Put all your poker chips. On, on red and gamble on God. Gamble on him. You know, he isn't going to let you down, will he? I mean, that would be just preposterous. Unless your heart isn't pure. Don't do it in that regard. But just go for God. Go for it. And be that minister of peace. We don't need to tell people they're condemned because they already live in condemnation. They live with it every day. They struggle with it. You know, it's not vivid. They're not going to tell you that. But they live with it every day. They know something's not right. What we need to do is minister truth, and that truth motivated with love. You will become burdened with that, what the Holy Spirit burdens you with, rather than what you humanity does, and also rather than your own intuition. Make a way for the king. Make way for the king. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's your calling as a priest. Amen? Well, thank you. I think I got a little long-winded on that.